following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you who've been around for a while know that probably now for 20 years or more, we've been using the solstices and equinoxes as a time to come together as a community and to um, engage this really simple ritual of taking the refuges and precepts. So being December 19th, close to the solstice, I think it's full moon today too, on top of it. Um, at the end, we'll save, it takes about seven minutes or so, we'll save that at the end of the program today. And that's the in the document that Jessica has been pasting in the chat. So we'll remind you when we get a little closer to open that up so that you might want to do the refuges and precepts. And it's, you know, whether you do it formally and you appreciate that, because of course it's not everybody's cup of tea to engage these, I guess you'd call them spiritual rituals or whatever. But one way or another, we all have to, whether it's our cup of tea or not, we have to have a way of remembering what's, truly important, what's of most value in our lives. And the form, the religious or spiritual form of taking refuge, uh, which is what I'd like to talk about today, it's really a way of remembering what's of real value in our lives. And it's, it's not enough to have figured it out at one point where we had some clarity, oh, I get it, this is what my life is about. It's something that we have to, we want to renew and renew and renew, and it really teaches us something about our practice or the path of practice. It is this never-ending renewal of the practice, of the path, right? So in a way, we're finding and walking the path, not just once when we discovered it or we got some clarity about what my life is really about, but really it's a new, it has to be a new and fresh thing all the time. And I appreciate Fran, who sent in a question. And remember, it's always okay. I mean, I can't handle a ton of questions, but often there'll be overlapping questions. You're always welcome to send me a question or send it to the center, and I'll get it. And I'll try to weave it into the um, weekly talk on Sunday mornings. So anyway, uh, Fran sent a question that I think is a really nice setup for this discussion of refuge. What is our refuge? So uh, the question is this. My question is about the role of paradox in Dharma. Kristen Neff, who's a well-known writer, uh, writes about the paradox of self-compassion practices. She notes that we practice self-compassion because we suffer, not to take away our suffering. Yes, of course, I said to myself when I heard this explanation. I wondered if you think the same might be said about mindfulness practice. That is, we practice mindfulness meditation because we suffer, not to take away or remove our suffering. Is that a fair reading of the Dharma as you understand it? I'd appreciate your thoughts about this question as you reflect on our aspirations for our practice. Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about today. Last week, I talked about resolve or resoluteness, so that fits in nicely to just getting some clarity about our aspiration. What is it that we trust? 
what are we willing to put our heart into? And I think this question really helps us think about this. I, I don't have a clear one way or the other answer. Are we? I would expand it beyond just mindfulness meditation and just walking this path of wisdom, wisdom awareness, compassion. And what is our relationship to suffering? And I think the, the important point that Fran is, uh, I think, uncovering in their question is trying to get rid of suffering, trying to escape suffering isn't the way out of suffering. <laughs> That's the point. But here's the other point, and this is provocative, and we should hold it uh, with a lot of curiosity. The Buddha unequivocally says there is an end to suffering. Right? There is suffering and an end to suffering. He, at one point, you might remember the simile where he held up a few leaves. They were in a forest, and he asked the people who were with him, you know, are there more leaves in my hand or leaves in this forest? Pretty obvious question. They said, more leaves in the forest. And the Buddha says, just so. What I've been teaching, what I'm trying to share with you from my own experience, my own practice, is pretty simple and limited. I'm not trying to tell you everything about everything. I'm not even teaching metaphysical truth. I'm not trying to tell you, like, what is the absolute truth of the universe. I'm just interested in suffering and the end of suffering, just this one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. That's why for 45 years the Buddha traveled northern India, wandering with nuns and monks, people who were ordained with him, teaching, because he really cared about this possibility of the end of suffering. And we have to hold that, like we might even, you know, the truth is we're still getting clear about the experience of suffering, hopefully. So the end of suffering is like, I mean, what we know about the end of suffering means, you know, we're, we have a good sleep, and for a while we're oblivious to being a suffering human being. Or we have a entertaining book that we absorb into, or we have a good sit, or we, you know, have some really nice circumstances, and we get a break. We forget the experience of dukkha. And remember, dukkha doesn't mean just that I have pain in my foot, or this bad thing's happening to me, or I care about the suffering of others. Dukkha is even when things are really nice, that they can't be solidified into some kind of permanent safety and ground for my living. We can't really get to a utopia as a living being because there's birth and death, there's uncertainty, there's vulnerability, nobody is in control of all the causes and conditions, karma, right? This conditional unfolding that really is the sort of ground of our being, right? We're in this changing, uncertain, but lawful place of circumstance, of what we often say is causes and conditions. One place the Buddha says that the cause of suffering is not understanding it. So the escape from suffering isn't by getting away from it or by getting rid of it, it's about this transformation of understanding. That's why we call this, some of you know, Common Ground Meditation Center 
is in this Western lineage of Buddhism that we call insight meditation, vipassana meditation. So we use that word, it's really, that's what we mean by transformation of understanding. So the problem, the cause of suffering is chronic misunderstanding, chronic misperceiving of our experience as humans. And the resolution is to correct the chronic misunderstanding through the development of insight. And that brings us right to our refuge. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, these are the three words we use and we'll chant this a little later before we end today. But to be awake, Buddha, to be awake, to be open, to be radically sensitive, radically not afraid, radically curious, about what? About the way it is about this, the nature, the especially the subtle underlying nature of causes and conditions, this activity of the body and the mind, the activity of the present moment. To be intimate, Buddha means being intimate, being awake to Dhamma, the way it is, or Dharma, the way it is, the actuality of the present moment. Not the way it is cognitively, or conceptually rather, the way we think it is, but the way it actually is right now. And fortunately, we don't have to worry about all those moments we miss because we were deluded or distracted or obsessed about this or that. Because fortunately, there's always this moment. There's only this moment. And even that idea that there's a me sort of moving through life, time and space, yeah, it's even that is sort of part of the... Um, delusion that the chronic misunderstanding, chronic misperception, misperceiving of the way it is. So we really have to start out fresh, stabilize, <clears throat> sensitize the heart, the clarity, the curiosity, the stability of present moment awareness, so we can increase the probability of the deepening of insight. Because the proximate cause for insight is the stabilizing of present moment awareness, what we call in our practice, samadhi. So the real answer, I mean, I really like that, uh, you know, quoting Kristen Neff, who's done a lot of work around self-compassion, if you don't know her writing and teaching. Um, we suffer not, our practice of self-compassion isn't to get rid of the suffering, but it's actually to be more close, more intimate with the way it is. That's where we find the healing and the liberation we really took birth for, that we're here for. This is the real refuge, purpose, aspiration, whatever word you want to use. If the word refuge doesn't resonate with you, maybe aspiration, you can even use the word goal if you want, even though it's, you know, packed with, you know, craving, you know, we generally feel justified in leaning in and craving, wanting our goal to be achieved. But it really doesn't matter because we can get neurotic about aspiration and we can get neurotic about refuge. But we still need to conceive and intuit from drawing from our own experience, our own intuition, and even what we hear and read. We have to conceive of what is possible. Because having blind faith or, you know, unquestioned faith may be a more appropriate way of saying it, that 
there's nothing to be realized, there is no freedom from suffering, having kind of unquestioned faith in that is just as much delusion, delusional, as having faith in something you haven't checked out because that's what you were told or some charismatic figure told you to believe in it. Right? We have to be willing, this is actually part of the way the Buddha taught, we have to be able and willing to listen, to read, to study what's, you know, like to have enough humility, confidence that I know I don't know, so that I'm willing to listen what sounds reasonable, who seems to know what they're talking about. Still, we don't believe them, but we check it out, grounded in our own experience. So that's the second part. The first part is that we have to be willing to listen, to get new information one way or another, and then we have to check it out. We have to know it well enough that then on our own, we can regurgitate what we've read or heard, you know, like in a talk, and then see how it illuminates or not our present moment experience. Can we get closer to the way it is right here and now? Can we see and experience what we're not seeing yet about the nature of our experience here and now? We have to check it out. That's that famous repeated line from the Buddhist teachings, Ehi Pasiko, come and see or as it's uh, sometimes translated, encouraging investigation. Like when we use the Buddhist teachings, for example, does it draw us in like, oh, there is something here that is worthy of being close to, worthy of seeing, worthy of opening to. I can really learn something here. You know, like we take the invitation to get to know the activity of reactivity. <laughs> You know, like how the mind reacts with greed or reacts with hate, reacts with distraction and delusion. Oh yeah, this is a cause for stress. This ties the heart up into knots. Oh, I get it. This isn't helpful. This is from Adyan Sumedho, one of my favorite little books that I think is just such a great, not just introduction, it's really just a great companion for the path. It's called The Mind and the Way by Ajahn Sumedho. He's a Western Buddhist monk, one of the elders in our early Buddhist tradition here in the West. He practiced with Ajahn Chah in the 60s and early 70s and then started some monasteries in England where he's lived uh, much of the last 40 years or so. And uh, in the chapter on Dhamma, Dharma, he talks this way or he writes this way. Meditation is a way of opening to Dhamma. You're opening to the truth, right? It's Buddha, right? Awakening, being awake is how we open to the truth. So he writes, so when we chant about Dhamma, we say that it is apparent here and now, timeless, Encouraging investigation, that's that word, ehipasiko, leading to liberation, right? It has the taste of freedom, opening to the present moment. To be experienced for oneself, and the last, realizable by the wise. And he continues writing, these are words that point to the here and now. When we're opening to truth, we're 
not looking for anything in particular, like focusing on one object and saying, is this the truth? Opening to the truth is opening the mind, opening the heart, rather than focusing on one thing. So when we take refuge in the Buddha and Dhamma, that reminds us to be in the state of alert attention. Some people might use the word openness or receptivity or even curiosity about the way it is. And he continues writing, we're not trying to concentrate on this or get rid of that. We're not getting caught in the habits of indulgence or suppression. When we do open, when we learn how to open ourselves here and now, then we begin to experience peacefulness because we're not looking for any particular thing to attach to. And this is what I was pointing to at the end of the guided sit. And I encourage you like, in, to connect your deepest wish, however you sense that in your heart, to be free, to be released, to not be bound up in any way whatsoever. Then take a couple moments at the end of your sitting time before you get up and to just explore here and now the heart, the mind, not in need, not needing anything to be different, not leaning forward, not pulling back, not hopeful, not afraid, the heart that knows how to be free of any kind of grasping, any kind of holding. And remember, we may not find that full, probably won't, full, unshakable release, or as Ajantani Saro calls it, the unprovoked awareness release. I like that too. We may not find it, but what we will more likely find is what appears to be in the way. And then we know the edge of our practice. Well, maybe I can be intimate with that. Maybe I can say yes to that. May I, maybe I can be willing to feel that too, sense that to be okay that that's there. Instead of, oh, this is in the way of my suffering. When I get rid of you, then I'll have it. And maybe, maybe I need to include you. Maybe you're not actually an obstacle to release, to peace, to freedom. Maybe freedom involves a transformation of understanding i.e. not being afraid, not being averse, not pushing and pulling. So he ends this paragraph. When we do open, when we learn how to open ourselves here and now, then we begin to experience peacefulness because we're not looking for any particular thing to attach to. We're not running about anymore. We're, not, we're stopping the frantic running. So opening to Dharma is the way of peacefulness, which we have to realize for ourselves. We have to realize the truth for ourselves. It's a matter, it's not a matter of waiting around for somebody else to realize the truth for us or to tell us what it is. But what we do need from our elders is to remind ourselves, what's the harm in staying open to the possibility of the heart's release. 
What's the harm? What's the danger in being curious about that? Because to be arrogantly certain that life as a human being sucks and then you die, or whatever negative, cynical, nihilistic idea that we might have, because even if we're living a pretty privileged life, we know there are a lot of people suffering, suffering injustice, suffering poverty, bad fortune, sickness, illness. So that kind of spoils any sort of well-being or privileged situation that we might have, knowing that there's industrial farming where animals are being mistreated and people are suffering because of this and because of that. So this kind of habitual search for nice circumstances, for comforts, for me getting that nice cabin on Lake Superior where everything's perfect. I found it, by the way, just unfortunately. It's not a big place, but it costs $1.8 million <laughs> for a tiny little cabin, but it's in a perfect place. That's the idea, right? Nobody's going to bother you, simplistic. This sort of, you know, and everybody, we all have our equivalent of what perfect escape might look like. Like getting into shape, losing weight, getting my mind so it knows everything, you know. You know, fixing my relationship with my partner or whatever it might be. Taking my dog for a walk because I've been neglecting it. Whatever your idea for like, oh, then it's going to be good. Then I won't feel this guilt. But there's always more. There's always more. So we have to lean in, in a sense, to the dukkha. Or one teacher says, we have to find the downtown of dukkha, the downtown of suffering, of the existential uneasiness, inside, outside, that pervades our lives. And it, it reminds me of a set of questions that Nyanaponika Tera, he's a a Westerner who went to Sri Lanka a long time ago, maybe now 50 years ago, he's passed away. But he did a lot of really essential translation of the Buddhist text into English. And just an important teacher. And he, in, in an article he wrote about refuge, he asked the questions, is this world of ours really such a place of danger and misery that there is a need for taking refuge? Do we need a refuge? And then he asked, does such a refuge exist? And if so, what is its nature? So this is a very human question to ask herself. Do I need a refuge? Or am I really, really doing fine? My heart is at ease. No lurking fear. No existential uneasiness. Have no problems with the way it is. Chances are you're deluded if we feel that way, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, in this case, you know, Ignorance isn't bliss, because what we don't realize when we're oblivious is it takes a lot of psychic energy to stay oblivious. But because we're oblivious, we don't realize how stressful and tenuous that situation is. It isn't really our job necessarily to remind people who appear to us to be oblivious that they might be oblivious. But it is our job, if we're that person, to somehow, you know, I was uh, talking with Wynn, my partner, who's here now. At, we're at the Forest Refuge IMS in Massachusetts. And, and uh, Wynn was saying she got a little teaching about how to use shock in her life. 
And this is when we need to skillfully use shock is when we're in a state of disconnection, obliviousness, caught up and totally okay about our obsessiveness about this and that, absorbed in different things that ultimately aren't really going to help anybody, ourselves or anybody. And then we need something to wake us up like, oh, this is whatever I'm doing, however I'm creating meaning for myself, this is not the way. This is not ultimately going to help me when I'm dying or when I'm with someone who's dying or when there's some huge exposure to vulnerability in my life or something rocks my boat then I'm going to be I'm going to feel betrayed by what I've been absorbed into for so long because it hasn't really made me a wiser more resilient more kind human being I'm still vulnerable and just in case you're sort of afraid of you know really taking refuge in being open Buddha, being open, being awake, being sensitive to Dhamma, Buddha, Dhamma, the way it is. We have some words from Joseph Goldstein in a book he wrote a while back now, but it's really a great book, Insight Meditation by Joseph Goldstein. In one of the early chapters, it's just a short chapter, it's called Fear of Enlightenment or Fear of Awakening. And here Joseph writes, Meditators sometimes report that fear of liberation holds them back in their practice. As they proceed into uncharted territory, fear of the unknown becomes an obstacle to surrender. But this is not really fear of enlightenment. It is fear, it is rather fear of the ideas of enlightenment. That's an important thing. It's like we can have all kinds of aversion to be, you know, being mindful, being present. But nobody is averse to being present when we actually do it. It actually feels good to be present, even if the present moment is painful. It's not always easy. And it may be time times we have to turn away from what's predominant because it's too overwhelming. But we can still be present with something else in the present moment. We'll go take a walk or we'll have a cup of tea or we'll stop looking at what's most painful and notice that the sky is still blue, or the birds are still singing, or the walking feels like this. There's always a way back to the present moment. It always feels good. So remember, being present doesn't mean we're always staring at the most existentially uneasy thing there is in the moment. There's a whole spectrum of what's here and now all kinds of dharma medicine to be open to for buddha awaken to awaken to the way it is and he goes on we all have notions about freedom dissolving into a great burst of light or in a cosmic or a great cosmic flash the mind might invent many different images of the experience of liberation sometimes our ego creates images of its own death that frighten us Liberation means letting go of suffering. Do you fear the prospect of being free from greed? Do you fear being free from anger or delusion? Probably not. Liberation means freeing ourselves from those qualities in the mind that torment and limit us. So freedom is not something magical or mysterious. It's, 
It does not make us weird, Joseph writes. Enlightenment means purifying our mind and letting go of those things that cause us so much suffering in our lives. It is very down to earth. And then he gives the simile, you know, for holding a, a really red hot charcoal, you know, it's just basic common sense to let go. And he writes, this is our practice, becoming aware of how suffering arises in our mind and how we become identified with it and learning to let it go. We learn through simple and direct observation, seeing the process over and over until the mind, the heart understands. I'll just end by reading one more thing from Yanaponika Tara, this uh, Westerner who was a Sri Lankan Buddhist monk for many decades. Once we take ourselves and our quality of life seriously and acknowledge the difficulties we may be experiencing, the next step is to have confidence that, one, it is possible to overcome them. In a way, the historic Buddha as a figure, as a human being, that's what this person represents. Of course, the Buddha can't do our work for us, but the idea that somebody has done this, or wise teachers that maybe you've encountered, who may be further along the way, right? So having these sort of role models, even people from long ago that we haven't had a personal relationship, they can exist in our hearts symbolically. There is a way. And the Buddha has a, a really sweet simile for this. The mother cow that fords the river and then the calf is on one side and the mother's on the other side. And what does the mother cow do? It makes that lowing sound. Basically, vibrationally saying to the calf, you can do this and you have to do this. You have to go across that river. I've done it. You can do it too. And the mother stays there and makes that lowing call until the calf finds the courage to do the thing it has to do. It's the same thing. We can orbit around the practice of being intimate with the way it is forever. But eventually we just have to start doing it in formal sitting times and then over time all day long. We have to actually incorporate, right, first we hear about the three refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, being awake to the way it is, and expressing the fruits of that intimacy, which is living in a compassionate, skillful, wise way. That's Sangha. That's what we mean by Sangha. Sangha is like how a human being lives and shows up when their Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, being awake to the way it is right now. We're only able to be truly skillful, kind, and wise when we're deeply connected, intimate. And that's the refuge. And like I said, we can avoid it until <laughs> the cows come up. <laughs> right? We can avoid it forever. We do avoid it forever. I remember when I first discovered the teachings of the Buddha, like when I was 23 or something. And uh, and I really got into it a big time, really fast, just became weirdly devoted. <laughs> and the, the thing that was so amazing, it's like all of a sudden I notice, like it was everywhere. 
But before I had kind of made this discovery, I was oblivious that there were these practices, that there was Buddhism. I mean, I knew it intellectually, but it was like, it's like all the messages were right there, but I was just oblivious, right? I was thinking about other things. And then once I got into the practice, it was like there were cues and reminders and supports everywhere. And uh, that's how we have to start seeing our world. So it is possible to overcome them. There is a way to accomplish this. And the third thing he says is we're capable of achieving this. Taking refuge is not a passive act of placing ourselves in the hands of a higher power that will do everything for us, as the English word refuge might imply. It is rather an active process of putting a safe and reliable and positive direction in our life. In other words, we're planting seeds. So let's open up that document if you'd like to do this. Otherwise, you can just listen. And it's at the end of that document. And it's just something we do. Again, it just takes about seven minutes. And it's just a community thing. It's actually traditionally a way for Buddhists or for people who want to align with the Buddhist teachings Remember, Buddhism isn't really a religion in the sense that we're believing in kind of a higher power, or the higher power we're believing in is this capacity to be awake, sensitive and intimate with the way it is, moment by moment, and expressing more freedom, more love, more compassion, and more skill as we live our lives. So if you want to call that religion, fine. Otherwise, it's a spiritual practice. But we want to align with it. And so for people in the past, aligning with it meant in community doing the refuges and precepts together. And briefly, the precepts are just this resonant commitment to non-harming. Because if we're living a life of a lot of harm, and then we want to develop the sensitivity, it won't work. Because when we settle down, we're going to feel a lot of regret because we're living in a way that's causing a lot of harm. <laughs> and it will literally, appropriately haunt us when we settle down and become more intimate. So that's why not only do we commit to non-harming because it causes harm, <laughs> we commit to non-harming because when we become sensitive, our non-harming haunts the heart. It burdens our heart we have an incentive to be a good human being, which is as it should be, I think. So let's do the three refuges. A lot of folks like using this gesture. It's called Anjali, hands together. I'm very familiar being raised as a Catholic. I like this gesture. And it's just a sign of this is important to me. That's what this gesture can mean. So we're going to hold our hands like this, if you like. And the first thing we do is we acknowledge our teacher. And that's the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. And now the three refuges spoken three times. Buddhang saranang gachami 
Dhammang saranangachami, Sangang saranangachami, Dutiyampi, which means for the second time, Dutiyampi buddhang saranangachami, Dutiyampi dhammang saranangachami, Dutiyampi sangang saranangachami, Tatiyampi buddhang saranangachami, Tatiyampi dhammang saranangachami, Tatiyampi sangang saranangachami. And now we'll do the five precepts. And you'll see that under each of the five precepts is a really useful little comment from an elder in the Buddhist tradition, Thich Nhat Hanh. He's an older monk, Vietnamese monk, who taught in the West for many decades. So you can take a look at that. But we'll just chant the Pali, then we'll read the English, which is right underneath. And then we'll have pause so you can read to yourself uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's comments about how you might practice each of the five precepts. So the first precept, Panatipata, where Ammani Sikapadang Samadhyami, I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. For those who don't have it open, I'll read. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all living beings. I'm determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. And so let's do the second now. Adina dana, where ammini sikapadang samariyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which was not given. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering and the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. And now the third. Kame su mitchachara vir amini sikapadang samariyami I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. And then Thich Nhat Hanh's comment, Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse 
and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice it. And so now the fourth. Musawada where amani sikapadangsa mariami. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am determined to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain and will not criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division or discord. I am determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. This is the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. And then finally, now the fifth. Sura Maria Majapamadatana where Ammini Sikapadang Samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I'm determined not to misuse alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that undermine spiritual growth, such as unwholesome TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I'm aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with such poisons is to harm all human beings. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and the transformation of society. This is the fifth of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice it. And we end with this short blessing we're really giving to ourselves and to others. Yidame silang magafalanyana sapachayo ho tu. May my conduct lead to attainment of the deepest fruits of liberation. And we happily dedicate all this goodness of our practice, of being here together today, for the well-being of everyone, those here, those not here. May all beings happily receive whatever blessings are generated in my life. May they be dedicated to the alleviation of suffering, the deepest happiness and peace for all beings. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.